He was raised Catholic, then became an atheist, then returned to the church. The journey of Dr. Kevin Vost. This is Dive Deep. From the Diocese of Springfield in Illinois, this is Dive Deep, where we dive deep into our Catholic faith, along with Amber Servany. I am Andrew Hansen, and you know, Amber, everyone's spiritual journey is different. Yes. But Dr. Kevin Vos is radically different, if you want to use that word. Grew up Catholic, became an atheist, back to Catholicism, and he joins us today on Dive Deep. Dr. Vos, good to see you. Thanks for coming on. Well, thanks so much. My pleasure to be here. And I should point out, I was only atheist for about 25 years, only, I, but, but we can elaborate. <laughs> <laughs> only 25 years. It's an incredible story. Uh, you live here in Springfield. Um, as I mentioned, Catholic, atheist, Catholic Today. You've written several books, 20 of them. I shouldn't even say several, 20 books. Uh, you got a few more in the on the back burners right now that will be coming out. Um, so let's first get into your, your story. You live here in Springfield. You're a parishioner at St. Catherine Drexel. Um, the first thing I think, anyone, you, you grow up Catholic and then become an atheist. So, so take us back, Dr. Vost. And we, we mentioned doctor because you're a psychologist, so we'll get that out there too so people are aware. Uh, take us back to the beginning. What, what happened? Sure, sure. And this is a real treat for me to be telling this story, what happened early on in the same building where some of it happened. Because <laughs> I went to... to Go full circle. Life's full circle. It, right? is, yeah, it, is, it is astounding. True. It is astounding. I'll let you know when we get to that point, and I'll pinpoint where it was in relation to this room, if I can remember. <laughs> but but actually, yeah, though, I was, uh, you know, born Catholic or, you know, baptized, you know, of course, as an infant. My parents... Uh, I think Dad was a Methodist, or, or came into the church for with my mother. My mother was an Irish Catholic woman, strong in the faith. I uh, had brother and sister, so we we all uh, you know were baptized. We went to mass every Sunday, you know, starting in the 1960s and into the 70s. There went to wonderful Catholic schools. I went to uh, St. Agnes School. This is back in the dark ages when it was in the buildings downtown. <laughs> That's right. It used to be right next to the, it's where the Stratton building is. Isn't yeah. St. Agnes Church used to be where the Stratton building is right next to the Capitol. I yeah, it, it was uh, the Stratton building's parking lot. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right across from yeah. the Stratton building. That's exactly right. <laughs> a little bit of interesting history there at the yeah. diocese. Yeah. When I heard that, I was like, there used to be a church right here because I used to work in the Stratton building. Oh, interesting. And there's one surviving uh, building there. Remember, I went to the Spelling Bee Championships a few times. There's one surviving building on that complex that was the convent for the sisters that's still there. I think it's part of Secretary of State now. <laughs> but anyway, uh, yeah, so, uh, you know, we went to Mass. We had great Catholic education. We weren't a particularly religious family in that we didn't really talk about the faith at home. Uh, though, and I remember one time, you know, going to Griffin High School here, taking religion classes, we had to you know, do some homework and some assignment that involved using uh, the Bible. And of course, this was long before anyone heard the word internet. And we realized, well, we didn't have one. So we had to drive down to the Marion Center and pick up <laughs> a, a Bible. Okay. Uh, so anyway, it, it was when I was a teen uh, here at, you know, at Griffin High School at the time, probably maybe freshman, sophomore year, uh, I'd, I'd started to develop what I learned later psychologists call the hypothetical reasoning ability, abilities of adolescence. And one version is like this if-then thinking, kind of think through the consequences of things. And I remember, yeah, this was in a building here. It was one of the second floor buildings here or with uh, the classroom had windows that are facing east, so maybe not 100 feet or more <laughs> away from here. And I was sitting here thinking, you know, with this if-then, you know, if all this stuff I've been taught about Jesus all my life, you know, through grade school here, you know, if this is really real, and I believe it is, 
then this is the most important stuff in the world. And I really should take it more seriously and try to live my life by it. So uh, at that time also, like through most of my life, I was immersed in weightlifting. I'd go down to the old YMCA on a regular basis and work out. And it happened that a lot of buddies my age, a lot of the teens there and some somewhat older guys were, were really turned on to Christ. They were, they were uh, Protestants, but they were calling themselves saved or born again, you know, very, very common at that time. And so we could speak to each other and occasionally I went with them, you know, to, to their churches and also it's really, you know, trying to get embroiled in, in the faith, though I had no desire to leave the Catholic faith because though some of them might give me an odd eye depending on their church, wondering if I was a Christian, you know, when they knew I was a Catholic, you know, what? But I knew that we had Jesus, you know? <laughs> and yes, they had Billy Graham and people like that I love, but I, but I knew we had Fulton J. Sheen, <laughs> you know, so things like that. So it was a good time. You know, I had a few years where I, it really took me, you know, somewhat deeper into the faith and my level of understanding at that time. But again, I'm immersed in bodybuilding. I live and breathe weightlifting, you know. So in this and, moment in time, again, you're, you're, yeah. you're 13, 14, yeah. you still are, you're, you're Catholic, you're going yes. to mass and oh, yes. maybe not all in because you're maybe not talking about it, but you're, you're still Catholic and, and. And even though these your buddies are talking Protestantism, you're mm -hmm. like, no, I'm, I'm Catholic. I love being Catholic. Oh, yes, yes. And, you know, I mean, yeah, so I would just happily go with them once in a while to their services. Not that I was going to switch, just in fellowship with them. But, no, I had no temptation to leave the church. I grew a little, yeah, I was growing closer at that time in my mid, early and mid-teens, yes. And then it was around the age of 18, as I said, I always just lived and breathed muscle building and bodybuilding because at that time I did not know about genetics and your personal individual limitations and I thought if I lift weights hard enough and if I eat enough protein I'm going to be Arnold Schwarzenegger <laughs> until I went to a seminar with a man another top bodybuilder named Mike Menser he was a Mr. Universe the first one to get a perfect score and I'm there at a seminar in St. Louis and he tells all us young guys there he said he said there's one secret to being a top flight world-class bodybuilder. So we're all, okay, you know, what is it? You know, do we have to drink motor oil or <laughs> work out 12 hours a day? We're in, we're in. But he said, no, you've got to choose the right parents. And we're, choose the right parents? <laughs> how are we gonna do that? You know, so he's talking about things like how you know, broad your clavicles are, that you can't change that, other things like that. So I kind of realized, boy, I guess I'm not gonna be, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger, but, but I can still be, be fit and healthy and strong and, and all that. But anyway, he also talked about systems of weightlifting that were very, very sensible. I found, wow, this man really knows what he's talking about. Uh, but, but he also, in these bodybuilding magazine articles, he talked about the philosophy th that he dabbled in. And at that time, it was people like uh, Friedrich Nietzsche, famous German atheist, uh, Friedrich Nietzsche. And, and Ayn Rand, she was the Russian-American novelist. And may, some people who read her novels may not even realize she was a very vociferous atheist, though oddly she had a great respect for St. Thomas Aquinas <laughs> because of his, the way he also valued reason. Uh, but people like that, Bertrand Russell, so a lot of these atheists, I'm, I'm reading their stories and I'm coming across arguments I've never seen before that uh, led me to think that the idea of God is either uh, self-contradictory or that you don't really need the concept of God. And I don't know, would you like me to... Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, because yeah, okay. that, is, that is very fascinating to go from Two years prior, you're working out with your buddies. I'm Catholic. I'm all mm -hmm. in. And mm -hmm. then all of a sudden, things are starting to drift pretty quickly. Oh, yes. And I'm glad you put it that way because, yeah, to tie it back to that if-then thinking, I say as, as if my, my if was taken away. Now I'm thinking, well, maybe all this I was taught about Jesus is not true. 
then I don't, I'm not going to live my life, you know, according to that teaching. So it's really powerful. But, but, but here's an example of some of those arguments that I was reading. Because I also loved philosophy and tried to be a deep thinker. In fact, the reason I became a psychologist, I wanted to be a philosopher, but I wanted to stay in town and there wasn't a major. <laughs> so what's the next best thing? Well, I think psychology has a lot of overlap. So, and it worked out well. I'm, you know, God knows what he's doing. It worked out well. But, uh, but yeah, okay, so example. Here's one of the arguments. And some of the modern atheists out there, Richard Dawkins, a biologist, they're, they're bringing up this argument, you know, even in our modern times, and they say, okay, how can God be both all-powerful and all-knowing? Because uh, if he knows what he's going to do tomorrow, then he doesn't have the power to go and do something different. It's like, it just doesn't make sense, okay? Uh, and that one, oh, and I should give the other one, another one of the main ones, is the idea that uh, it's not really necessary. God's not necessary. Uh, Ayn, Ayn Rand and her objectivist philosophers talked this way. They had a premise, uh, an axiom. They said, existence exists. Open up your eyes. There's the world out there. They said, it's there, the universe. You don't have to ask where that came from because that's the starting ground. You know, it was arguments like that. I didn't know how to refute those. And I say, you know, either I wasn't catechized to address that kind of thing, or I was and I wasn't paying attention those days. <laughs> you know, it's hard to say. But, but arguments like that were compelling to me. Uh, and we can get in more to the story, but, but for about 25 years, I kind of wished I could believe, but I thought, honestly, I can't. I don't know how to answer this. It makes sense, you know. Um, Do you remember a point in time, you mentioned it started at 18, where you flat out said, you know what? I reject the concept of God. Like, this is it. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm done. I'm an atheist. Well, you know, it's like I can't pinpoint a particular day or time or anything, but the general time frame, it just kind of came on gradually. Then it's like, oh, no, you know. Um, yes, and I remember it must have been 18. It was after I was gone, done with, finished with Catholic school, going to public uh, community college. But, but it was like, too, it was... It was um, Sort of a sadness. I thought, I, you know, I, I'd like to believe God is there. And, and uh, in fact, like, you know, later my, my wife and I, we had boys, you know, we had them baptized. I sent them to Catholic schools uh, because I knew there was so much good there that I got out of it in high quality education and the ethics and the morals. So sometimes I'll tell people, as I look back on it now, I thought, yeah, I never spoke out against the Catholic Church because I knew there was so much good there. They were just wrong about one little thing. Well, the existence of God. <laughs> but <laughs> it took me 25 years to realize I was wrong about the most important thing of all, you know. But anyway, so, so yeah, so I went through this period there where I didn't know how to answer these questions. I, I'm living my life, uh, getting married in the Catholic Church. In fact, my wife went through uh, instruction to become a Catholic too. Mostly did this for the sake of my mother. And also during this time, you know, I never spoke out against church. I did not try to draw people away because I thought, I know people are, are you know, they're, they're strengthened by their faith. I don't want to try to rob them of their faith. Unfortunately, I, I can't believe I'm going to believe. I don't honestly believe I can believe, but I don't want to try to rob that from other people. So again, we, we had our boys baptized, went through Catholic schools, which I'm so glad now, you know, looking back that, uh, that we did. I'm living a busy life, uh, went to work for the state doing disability work mental and physical disability for Social Security, and I, I did that for 32 years. Uh, Ten years or so into that, the state brought down this program from a school in Chicago using the uh, University of Illinois at Springfield campus so I can get a doctorate in clinical psychology. So I did that you know, while I was working full-time, except for the dissertation and internship year. Then I took a year off, but I was also doing part-time college teaching, so just super busy time. After I got my degree in 97, I, I stayed working full-time in disability because I liked that field. But then I also started doing, uh, continued doing part-time teaching on the side. 
University of Illinois at Springfield, Lincoln Land Community College, McMurray College. One of my favorite ones years, years later was uh, Aquinas College in Nashville because I thought I'd retired from teaching until the, the Dominican sisters down there asked me and I couldn't tell them no. <laughs> so I did make a, a brief comeback. But anyway, you know, at this point in my life, I'm very, very busy. In my early 40s, I thought, I read something from the, the Stoic philosopher Seneca. It said, he said, the, the busy person is least busy with living. In other words, you know, you're too busy constantly doing things. You don't have time to truly live. And I look back on it now, too. It reminds me of, like, you know, Martha, you're busy about many things. You know, time sometimes you need to slow down and focus on the one thing. So anyway, I did that. I, I took a semester off. I did a lot of reading. I took a course on natural law because I was always interested in philosophical topics. It happened to be taught by a, a Catholic priest, a Jesuit. And he talks about my favorite people, the ancient Greek philosophers and the tragic poets. And then he moves into St. Augustine and St. Thomas Aquinas. All those are familiar names. But I'm very, very wowed by what he tells me about And you're that. still atheist at this point. Yes, yes. 100%. That's right, 100%, 100%. You know, I had never dreamed I would be able to come back, though I wish I could, but I, I didn't think so. But anyway, this leads me then to a desire to read St. Thomas Aquinas directly, which I haven't, hadn't uh, done before uh, after seeing this course on natural law. But there was like a step in the, in the a couple steps in the middle. There's a man named uh, Mortimer Adler, University of Chicago, professor who was raised Jewish, called himself a pagan most of his life, was a follower of St. Thomas Aquinas as a philosopher. In his 70s, he becomes a Christian, and in his 90s, before he dies, he becomes a Catholic. <laughs> so I read, reread a couple of his books. One is called How to Think About God. Another was called The Difference of Man and the Difference It Makes. And here he is saying how human beings, there's you know, zillions of species on earth, and we're the only ones who have intellect and will. You know, the church teaches, yeah, that's because we're the ones made in the image and likeness of God. And you know, this is making real good sense to me. Then to make a longer story short, to tie it up here, I start reading St. Thomas. You know, the second part of this massive Summa Theologica, 3,000 and some pages, is about humanity, human nature. You know, what makes us happy? What is, what is virtue? How do our thought operations work? How do, what are our emotions or passions? What are they? And I'm reading Thomas and I'm thinking, boy, you know, I've read a lot of good psychologists, but there's none that, that match Thomas. I mean, he really has the humanity down, but of course he's also borrowing from Augustine and Jerome and all of our great, you know, church doctors and thinkers and theologians who came uh, before him. Then I move into the first part of the Summa Theologica. That's where he talks about God. And you know, those, he has these five famous proofs, which now I find very, very compelling. But I remember one of the first things I was read what he's talking about, the attributes of God, what God must be like based on what we know. And this is where we get the, the answers to what I thought were unsolvable. You know, like God's a contradictory. That's the idea. How can he do something different tomorrow? And Thomas talks about the eternity of God. You know, if you think of God's tomorrow, you're thinking him like a great big human being. You know, but God lives in the eternal now. It's all present to him. There is no tomorrow and yesterday to him. It's, it's all there. So there's no contradiction. His will is, is unimpeded you know, forever, as is, his, as is his knowledge. And Thomas gives a wonderful analogy. He says, imagine that you're like walking on your way to a little village, and it's a hilly road. So you might not see that village until you're at the top of the last hill, right? He said, also on that trip, you may not know who's coming before you, who's coming after you. He said, but imagine the perspective of someone high in the sky. 
They see that destination the whole time. They see everyone on the route. And in a sense, that's an analogy for God's eternal knowledge of everything all at once. And that kind of wowed me. You know? I never heard that, but that's, that is that's a good, good analogy. Isn't it yeah. something? Because, yeah, and the atheists, you know, the modern atheists still use this, but they don't they don't really know St. Thomas and our other church teachings. So, so boy, thought, okay, he's answered that one for me, which I thought was the, um, you know, the riddle of the Sphinx, the unsolvable. Thomas answered that, and boy, he borrowed from church fathers and philosophers who, who lived, and Thomas is in the 1200s, and he's borrowing from people in the church who lived a lot, long before him. So the answer was already sitting there, but I didn't know it. Uh, the second one, the idea that uh, existence exists, or not the universe, you don't have to ask where it came from. And Thomas is pointing out, and this is like mostly in his third uh, proof on the existence of God, you know, yeah, look at that, you look at the universe, look at yourself, you know, which one of us gave ourselves our own existence? Well, none of us, right? And look at all the objects around us, you know, and how many of these objects were here a hundred years ago, you know, or even as we know, even the, the continents, everything is constantly changing. So he says, what material thing gave itself its own existence, has the power to do that? And he said, nothing. It's all uh, contingent. It might exist, it might not exist. And he said, too, if, if maybe at some point in time, if nothing existed, there's there would be nothing to bring it into existence. So, so basically he's saying there must be some necessary being that cannot not exist, that is producing all this, sustaining all this, and this is what we call God, you know. So I was totally wowed about that. And then Thomas goes through all this philosophical argument, you know, that, that God is the being that, that must exist, his existence and essence, he says, are as one. You know, he, he goes through Aristotle and all this, and then almost essentially says, oh, by the way, you know, look at Exodus 3.16. Moses says uh, to God in the burning bush, Oh, by the way, what's your name? Who should I say sent me? And he says, you know, I am. He says, say, he who is sent me. So like in, you know, two or three words in Scripture, you know, these ancient, you know, uh, the, the ancient uh, Hebrew people out in the desert have this profound, you know, few-word statement that sums up this idea about God. So obviously it came from God. So, you know, so, so reason and faith, boy, they, they match up. And that was the key insight through Thomas, too. It's like, Boy, what I've been taught, it really is reasonable. It's not contradictory. It does make sense, and it fully warrants me, once again, taking that leap of faith and embracing God. So I was 43 years old, and I was, I was like, wow. you know. So, so in this moment you're, you're reading, are you all of a sudden just like, everything, I'm back. Or Take us that, do you remember about like that day, that hour you're reading that, and you're like, Everything I just did the past 25 years is now turned on its head. Well, it's funny. I doubt I went to boo because my wife would probably be teasing me about that to this day. She would if I did. <laughs> but, but it was almost like that. It was like a gradual process. Yeah, I remember I'm reading Adam. I'm thinking, boy, oh, boy. This is making sense. This is making sense, you know. And then all of a sudden, Thomas, and again, I couldn't give you an exact date, but it's like, oh, my Lord, I believe again. I could, you know, I would occasionally go to church because I can go there and I can participate. You know, I'm going to go to the Sacrament of Reconciliation, you know, the whole bit. But it was just an, an awe-inspiring thing, you know. It's kind of like the scales fell from my eyes. And here's a fascinating thing. And we could get into how maybe Thomas influences my books if we have time and if you, if you want to. But when I was reading the Summa Theologica, the version I had had an essay at the start from Pope Leo XIII called Eterni Patris. Uh, Eternal Fathers, and it was uh, on the restoration of the golden wisdom of St. Thomas Aquinas. And, and Pope Leo XIII said it's 1879. Now this is shortly after like the books of Darwin are out, and more and more people maybe are scientifically minded saying, oh, I'm going to cast away the faith, I'm going to go by reason and evidence. And Pope Leo said, for people like that, for people who decided they're only going to follow their reason, 
and, and reject faith, you know, without evidence. He said, what's going to bring them back to Christ and the church is the stirrings of the Holy Spirit and the writings of the great church fathers, the scholastic theologians, and primarily the writings of St. Thomas Aquinas himself, because he kind of encapsulates all those, all those people. And lo and behold, 125 years later, that's virtually exactly what happened. <laughs> To me, <laughs> so what do you think? What do you think changed, or did you do you think something changed in you? Because it sounds like you were still living a what you call like a virtuous life. Like you didn't believe in God, but you were still, you know, virtue was still part of your life. And so, what what do you think changed in you after that moment? You're like, now, nah, okay, God, yep, I believe it. Was there like something that you could recognize, or you saw different about yourself, or you felt after you made that connection? Yeah, yeah, and you know, yeah, I tried to live a virtuous life. I mean, I love uh, some of the bad philosophers led me away from the faith, but I still embrace some of the good ones, you know, Aristotle and some of the Stoics and people like that. Uh, but yeah, kind of a, a real difference it made was now, uh, well, you know, as Augustine said, your heart is restless until, it, my heart's restless until it rests in thee and rests in God. It's like that, wow, a real deep sense now of peace and joy and calm and relief. Uh, it was just amazing, and just a sense of love. Now I can be there. Now I can participate in the church. I found out shortly after I told my brother, and he said, well, you know, Mom and I have been praying for you for 25 years, which I didn't realize, you know, because wow. we just didn't talk about it. So, so it's just a really, really wonderful, you know, a, a, just, a, just a life-changing thing. And I will point out, too, I've been pretty blessed in my life without a lot of hardships, and usually things have gone well. But I did have one time, not long after I, I graduated, I, I took a new job as a psychologist. We moved briefly out of Springfield, and it ended up just being a total disaster. Uh, I was in a field that was totally unmatched with my qualifications, and I just kind of jumped in it through pride. I thought I've never failed at anything in my life, you know. But then I go up there and I, and I realize, boy, this isn't this isn't working. And like um, I remember, I, I took the psychology licensing exam over in Indiana, and the day I opened the mail and said, "Oh, you've passed. You got the highest score in the state," I was starting to go into a profound depression, realizing I made a huge mistake. I'd relocated our, our family. You know, I'd left my job <laughs> and, and all this. And at that time, it took me months. I was very, very depressed. God works in amazing ways. I was able to get back down here. Our house sold in a snap. My wife got her old job back. Our kids were able to go to the old school. I ended up in a position that ended up before long paying more than that psychologist's job did. You know, so God was watching out for us. But at that time, that was still 14, 15 years before I came back. So I spent about six months, the only time in my life, in a very depressed state because it's really hard to be depressed when you don't believe in God, when there's, you know there's no guarantee that things are going to turn out well. Yeah, and, and, mm. and, and what's so fascinating about your story is also you're a psychologist. You always have this, this mind game playing in you. And so kind of going along with that, after you came back to the faith, is that when you realized that maybe over the past 25 years you thought you were happy but you weren't? Uh, yes, yes. It was just a superficial happiness. And also, like with the, with the psychology, I was a big fan of a cognitive therapy, this Albert Ellis, who, who happened to be an atheist, but has a lot of good ideas in therapy, uh, the Stoic philosophers, who are very, very good at helping you control your emotions. But at that point in my life, it wasn't enough. Those natural remedies that I knew inside and out, they weren't enough. What, what so You mentioned, obviously, St. Thomas Aquinas and everything. Um, take us then back to maybe going to confession for that first time and coming back to mass, what's going through your mind? And, you know, you mentioned the scales. I mean, is this, this has got to be a very emotional week for you when this probably all, all happened when you officially came back to the faith, so to speak. 
Uh, yeah, it is. It is. You know, I remember the great joy there being in mass, like, wow, I can fully participate. You know, I'm really believing this, you know, and getting confession and, you know, that wonderful feeling that you have when the, the weight is removed or the burden of your sins. I mean, it's just so, so liberating. I remember my, my boys were kind of shocked in a good way because with them, I never tried to talk them out of the faith. I was one of those people that thought, oh, I'll let them hear this and they can decide when they, when they grow up, you know. So, so, you know, they probably thought if I was to worship anyone, it was Zeus or something. I was so much into the Greeks and Romans, you know. Or, but, but they were thrilled, you know. It, it was very, very happy because, you know, they were Catholic all their lives. They, they were never unbelievers, and I never tried to, to get them to be. So it was just a wonderful time. And my, at that time, uh, let's see, yeah, my, my father was still alive. So it was a great joy, a great joy with him. My mom had already passed away. But, but mom, I'm, I'm sure mom knows, I'm sure mom knows. And I remember at times she would say, talk to me about things, mom, I really can't believe, and she's like, that's not true. She said, no, 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 you're not an atheist, you're not an atheist. And I guess maybe in a sense, deep down she was right, because I always wanted to believe in God. I just thought intellectually, oh, I can't, I can't honestly do that. And that was my own, you know, my own ignorance, my own intellectual error there. But I'll tell you though, but it was an absolutely joyful thing. To, to realize, you know, not only now can I believe, but I found that, you know, all these 25 years away, God was still using me. I was developing knowledge in psychology and faith and fitness and some other areas that I was almost instantly able to put into the service of the church when I came back. When, as an atheist, um, what's your, obviously you don't believe in eternal life anymore, or you don't believe in anything after life. I've, I've always heard some people say, you know, if you're an atheist, like, isn't it, shouldn't you maybe just kind of believe as, you know, as a just in case, you know, it's like, if you believe we're just going to go to the grave and, and that's the end of it. Well, if you don't believe, you know, perhaps you go to hell. So um, why don't you just believe just in case? How, how did you square what, when you're as an atheist, talk about your eternal life conundrum in your head. Yeah. Yeah. And, and about the eternal life, you know, it's like that Pascal's wager idea. Yeah. That you're going to uh, <laughs> hedge your bet. Hedge sense. your bet. Yeah. And I, you know, I was aware of that. <laughs> I was aware of that, but too, you know, I was, I almost, you know, just so logical. I was almost like, uh, you know, Mr. Spock of Vulcan or something. I have to have the logical reasons through there. So, so that didn't appeal to me. So my thought, you know, for all these years was, you know, when you die, that's just, that's just nothingness, you know. Uh, and that never really seemed to bother me. You know, of course, you know, when this starts, I'm 18 years old, I'm in my 20s. Of course, I'm going to sort of live forever anyway, right? <laughs> you know? But then as the years go by, it starts to become more and more meaningful. And when I had my period when I w was, was down in the dumps, you know, uh, that, that were, that's too when I started thinking about those things. So I was planting some seeds years before I came back. Oh, and I'll tell you another thing, powerful seed that was planted before I came back was, let's see how many years, uh, 12, 12 years before I came back, uh, I became pro-life. Hmm. Still as an atheist. Uh, because... I had bought into this idea that uh, when you were talking about the, the well, we didn't call it the baby at that time, but you know, the, the fetus, the embryo, the fetus, as opposed to the woman, you're pitting a potential life versus an actual life. And that actual life, that life of that woman must, must take precedent. And I bought into that, okay? Now we had, our first son was born, my wife had a couple of miscarriages in between, and when she was pregnant with our second son, the doctors recommend she get an amniocentesis in a real high quality ultrasound. And I was there with her. And the, the second that image flashed up on the screen, it was like, talk about another scales. That's not a potential life. That's a real 
life and thought, boy, he even looks like his brother, <laughs> who even said that to each other at that time. So some of these insights, you know, were working on me, moving me along uh, towards re-embracing the faith, you know, during those those years that I wouldn't call them dark in a sense, you know, I embraced natural virtue, but but during, especially during hard times, then I could really feel there was something, something important missing. Now, I, remember, uh, I remember Bishop Barron talked about at the USCCB a couple years ago, he, he, he and his team looked into the nuns, why so many people are leaving the, the church, N-O-N-E-S. Yes. Um, it's, it's, it's growing every day, unfortunately. You're obviously one of them. What, what are you seeing right now? Um, and really, one thing that actually struck me, and I wrote it down here, you, you talked about, we didn't talk about the faith at home. And I remember Bishop Barron said, one of the best thing parents can do if you want to keep your child from leaving the faith is to talk about the faith at home and to ask these tough questions and to talk about these things and don't just rely. Our Catholic schools are great, but it has to go beyond that. So what are you seeing right now why there's so much godlessness. You think of your own story, you think of our culture. What, what, what are you seeing out there? Yeah, and it's a, it's a big difference. You know, back in the 1970s when, when I was this young atheist, I didn't know any others. You know, oh. it, it, was, it, was not, it was rather unusual compared to now, as you say, these, the, the, the nuns, people without NONES, without any religious affiliation, just uh, growing in leaps and bounds. Uh, and in terms of the, the family, I think, yes, it, it is important, you know, to talk about your faith with your children because there's so much propaganda out there now, too, about it's, uh, you know, it used to be faith, uh, faith and reason. Now it's kind of like more you hear science versus religion, mm -hmm. like they're two opposite things. Which one do you believe in? Well, I believe in science. Well, you know, Thomas Aquinas says that science is one of the three, the least of the three intellectual virtues, you know. Church knows all about science and reason. And knowledge, but we're given this false dichotomy there. Uh, and in fact, that was one of the biggest things with my uh, conversion. You know, uh, Saint Pope John Paul II said, "Faith and reason are the two wings upon which we fly to truth." And so many kids are being brought up to think you got to make a choice. You know, uh, so yeah. So I think it's good for the parents to talk to the children to let them know that they're. You know, Saint Peter said, "You know, be ready, be prepared to give people a reason. You know, for the hope that you hold in your heart." So yeah, let. It's good to talk with your children, let them know that there's an amazing depth to our faith. And maybe let them know that if they find their faith challenged, you know, if they're questioning it, if there's questions they've been asked that they can't answer, you know, bring them to us. Bring them to us as your parents. Now, we may well know not, not know this answer either, but we can probably talk to our priest or someone who is going to help us track those answers down and share those with you. So I say, yeah, it is so, so important. Because here, here's what I see as the general scenario, so common. Uh, Kids, you know, go off, you know, they're raised in the faith, they go off to college, and so many of the professors there are going to give the impression that, okay, well, now it's time to abandon your, your childish ways. All that, all that stuff that your parents have taught you, your, your pastor, that's where little kids, now is where we're, we're the big time, the big, big thinking, you know, and they breed so much uh, disrespect for the faith, so much skepticism, so much of this idea, the false dichotomy of science versus religion. That, that many kids lose their faith and may not ever come back. I say, thankfully, some, maybe decades later, realize living their life, boy, those professors really weren't quite as smart as they <laughs> made themselves out to be. You know? So they may be kind of like you know, prodigal sons and daughters that hopefully will come back. So in a sense, I was that way. It wasn't the, the professors that pulled me away uh, myself, but, but it was my, my reading, my other reading. So anyway, to make a long story short, yeah, it's so common now. I think a lot of it is because of this false dichotomy that if our children really understood the depth of our faith, I mean, it's full of beauty, it's full of love, but it's also full of truth. Truth, that's, we can defend that truth. 
So for the kind of kids who are pulled away by these false arguments that say, yeah, keep in contact with your children and, and know what they're thinking in terms of uh, the faith. Um, I'm going to I'm gonna go back to your story, if I could, just real quick, because I was just mm-hmm. thinking um, when, as you were speaking that you you became to believe in God, but how far back was the Eucharist from that then? Because then all of a sudden was Jesus right back there in the Eucharist? Was that like something that divided for you? You had to kind of gain back that belief or, you know, understanding. Oh, yes. And that's an excellent question. That's a question. really good question. Yeah, that really is. Yeah. It, it, it gets rid of the nub of some of that stuff too, because, you know, they talk about um, the God of the philosophers. And I know, uh, oh gosh, what's his name now? But there, there was one of the world's most famous philosophers for decades who, who, most famous atheistic philosophers who wrote against God. Before he died, he wrote a book called, uh, but it was it just that he reversed. He became a believer. Okay, he said, I was wrong all these years. <laughs> now, he didn't actually become a Christian. He realized there's some kind of God there that's sustaining all this. He says, but I haven't made that leap uh, of faith yet for this particular man because it's possible to do that. No, it makes sense. There's some sort of a God out there. This didn't come from, from nothing. But it does take an additional leap of faith to believe in a personal God, to believe in the Holy Trinity. And for me, of course, this is partly from reading St. Thomas Aquinas. Like I said, yeah, he gives all these philosophical arguments. He's appealing to my reason. Oh, yes, this makes sense. Oh, yes, that makes sense. And some of this is what they call, he addresses the preambles of the faith, the reasons that come before faith, what people of faith can talk about in common with people who don't believe the faith, you know, so that, that lured me in. But then you have to make that jump from the God of the philosophers to the God of uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You know, and Thomas does that. He bridges that with the, the I am. And then what does Jesus Christ himself say? Before Abraham was, I am. You know, so the direct connection between this philosophical reality of God uh, and the Holy Trinity that like Thomas moves on to next, to me it was like, oh yes, it, this all fits. So, so virtually instantly, yes, I'm back with the Eucharist. I'm back with the Blessed Mother, the saints. Everything I learned is like, oh my Lord, you know, literally my Lord. This all makes sense. I, I can embrace the most beautiful tenets of the faith, uh, and they're not making me reject my reason. They're just perfecting it. Now, also, also in your story, you mentioned uh, the five proofs of God. Mm-hmm. What, what are the five proofs? I don't know if I've heard this before. Oh, well, in the very first part of the Summa Theologica, uh, I think it's, let's see, if I remember the numbering right, so it must be the first part, second question, third article, because I remember it goes one, two, three. Uh, Thomas says, you know, well, he first he kind of says, uh, is, is God self-evident? It's like, oh, you don't have to argue. Just, yeah, we just know that. And Thomas says, well, not necessarily. He said, you know, the fool says in his heart there is no God. There really are atheists. But Thomas says, if we understood God, that he, his essence is his existence, that if we really understood what God is, then yeah, it'd be self-evident. We couldn't deny it, but we don't know that. Uh, but so then he goes on to say, can we prove the existence of God just by reason? And he says, yes, we can. Then he gives like five uh, classic proofs. And without going into great detail, they all start with just evidence of the senses. What everybody can see with their own eyes. This is how they're powerful like in arguing with people who are agnostics or atheists. You can have common ground. So the first, you know, is the article, uh, the, the argument from movement or change. He's saying, you know, just, we know, we see everything moves, everything changed, nothing stays the same. And then he goes through a series of arguments to show that for that to be possible, there must have been something at the start, the unmoved mover, the source of all this change that's not itself changed and is always complete and whole at all times. And he he goes through logical process, what they call, you know, a posteriori reasoning, reasoning starting with what you can see and working your way back to higher level. And and St. Paul says this in Romans 1, 19 and 20, how people 
had a law of God written in their hearts, and, and even the pagans, they had that potential to realize God was there for, by seeing the works of creation. So anyway, there's, yeah, there's an argument uh, uh, from change or movement, an argument from causation. There are causes and effects, and the fact that you do that, you can work back. There must have been a first cause that got this whole chain rolling, or everything would just be dangling. There would be nothing to explain the beginning. The, God is a necessary being. Everything that we see is contingent. It may or may not exist. There must be something that must exist that starts all this and and holds it all in existence that's god and then uh what is it uh oh the degrees of perfection of being we talk about good better best you know and perfect and all so there's something that sets the standard that is all total goodness total perfection by which we measure these other things and he shows how this leads to god and the fifth one is uh the argument of uh divine governance he calls it it also has final cause some some other names and he's saying that everything uh every you know like rational means we act for a purpose, we act for reasons, but everything in nature has certain laws, certain things that operate. You know, we, we drop a stone, gravity operates. There's, there's always these purposes or, or ends or, or goals for everything in nature. He said, uh, and for all these, there must be a final cause, a reason, something that's drawing them all, uh, all on. He said that final cause is God. And a cool thing about these arguments, too, is like with some of this, they're saying, well, this is all like, chronological. If you, you go far enough back in time, uh, you know, there's all taking us back in time. But at the time, there's like two philosophical arguments. Well, one is, you know, that God, some kind of God created everything. The other, like Aristotle and some of the Greeks even thought that uh, the universe might be eternal with God. It always existed. It wasn't created. Well, Thomas said, based on pure reason, he didn't think he could really decide that. But based on what we're told in Scripture, we know it. We know we were created, right? But Thomas designed all these five arguments that even if you rejected creation and believed that uh, existence was always there, the arguments still hold because God is required to explain the existence of all this stuff right now. Why there are causes and effects right now. Why things move and change right now. So they're just amazing arguments. And in the Summa Theologica, he talks about it really briefly. In some of his other writings, like the Sumer Contra Gentiles, an earlier writing, he goes into great depth. So they're, they're really mind-boggling stuff. And then he goes on to like really flesh out like what does it mean that God is a necessary being? You know, what does it mean that he's an unmoved mover? And he goes into all the attributes of God. What does it mean to say that God is simple, that God is all-powerful, all-knowing, and all that? So it just, it just hangs together amazingly in beautiful ways. Oh, and sometimes modern atheists, I've read multiple critiques of Thomas's five ways in some of the books of modern atheists, and it is so obvious on reading they don't have a clue what his arguments are. Knowing them at such a superficial level, because you have to have some grounding in Aristotelian philosophy, potentiality, and actuality. It's, it's complicated stuff. So if you just look at it from a surface level, you know, you may not be impressed. It takes a lot of deep background understanding to realize how profound these are. I've always heard the argument if you're an atheist, you, know, you go up to an atheist and you say, do you know everything about there in the world? Of course they say no. Well, if you, if, because you don't know that, you, therefore there could be a, jo a God. You just don't know it yet. And they're like, well, of course. And they're like, well, now you're agnostic. I've moved you one step closer. Well, that's perfect. And that is, <laughs> uh, that's a good reason there. That's true. I like that. I'm not sure if I heard a phrase exactly the same way. That's good. That's right. Yeah, because if you want to be intellectually honest, you're going to have to answer. You have to answer, yes, I don't know. Question. And so by that logic, yeah, there, there could be. Now let's get into your books. You've written, you've written 20 books so far. I guess I mentioned at the top, you got some on the docket coming, coming up here soon. Uh, give us the overarching theme and let's talk about maybe your most popular as well. Sure, sure. You know, soon after I came back to the church, I was in 2004 in 
Yeah, 2004. In 2006, my first book came out called Memorize the Faith. And this is where it really gets kind of cool because my, you know, I was a psychologist and my specialty area was memory. Both how does memory work? How do we lose memory? Later, my study on Alzheimer's and brain injury and, and aging, you know. But my specialty area for my master's thesis was these different techniques to improve your memory. I stumbled across some book at the, the Lincoln Library, had a book sale, and they got rid of this old book from 1958. It was about memory. Nobody read it anymore. So I thought, oh, I can invest a quarter in that. <laughs> I said, that's the best quarter I ever spent. But, because these memory methods worked really, really well for me. So I based my master's thesis on them. Psychological studies showing when children, adolescents, and you know, I also dipped into younger and older adults too a bit, but when they're taught these methods, how does this affect their academic performance, like memorizing vocabulary or foreign language vocabulary, geography facts, you know, whatever. And I thought, these things are really, really effective. They really worked well for me. And even when I was away from the church, I always like to, to know the background of my subject area, not just the latest research, but where does this all come from? And I knew in some histories on memory techniques that two of the key figures were St. Thomas Aquinas in the 12th century, and St. Albert the Great, his teacher. We, we call this patron saint of scientists. In fact, the oldest book on memory techniques, called the Ad Herenium from the first century BC, St. Albert the Great wrote a line-by-line -line commentary on every line of that book. And they even said improving your memory is part of the virtue of prudence or, or practical wisdom. They said, because if we're gonna achieve virtuous goals in the future, we're going to choose uh, apply virtuous means in the present based upon what we have learned in the past. And they say because our life always moves, you know, from past to present, in a sense, memory is the most important part of practical wisdom, like, like you know, learning the tenets of the faith, things to guide your behavior. So, so they also talked about these special techniques to how to improve it. So when I remembered that, I proposed a book to a publisher, Sophia Institute Press, that became, came out and called Memorize the Faith, came out in 2006, and it, to this day it's my best-selling book, my first one. Um, but it, it took these memory techniques and showed with a tutorial, step by step, it was even illustrated, how to use these methods they're talking about to memorize things like the Ten Commandments, the, the Seven Deadly Sins, the virtues, the Beatitudes, the mysteries of the Rosary. In some chapters we did all the books of the Old Testament, all the books of the New Testament. And you memorize this stuff in its exact uh, order using these methods. And uh, it's just amazing to me that that happened to be my specialty area and Thomas and Albert, two of my <laughs> ultimate favorite saints, uh, were writing about it. So then that, that led to other books, but, but some memory books, some were on applying uh, faith and fitness. You know, my interest in the lifting world and, and nutrition world was able to come into play a little bit, some saints' biographies and other things. But, but maybe one of the main overarching themes is that uh, in some way or another, all these books are influenced by St. Thomas Aquinas. <laughs> Either I've incorporated some of his ideas or I've even done like basically their, their summaries and commentaries on specific parts of his works on different topics like the seven deadly sins, the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit, the four last things, and, and more to come. Can you indulge us at all a little bit on these techniques? Because I'm fascinated by this Same. because yeah. I don't know how many times, because I always heard phone numbers are seven because the mind can max out at like seven for something like a quick memorization. And I find myself after like four digits, I'm like, wait, wait, wait say that again. I, I, I get lost. I couldn't tell you the Ten Commandments in order. So I'm really fascinated by, can, can you indulge us and give us some quick... Uh, Snippets? Well, it depends on the time. I'm, I'm pretty sure I can get you the first five in just a minute or two. <laughs> okay, but, but first let me just give a, a little demo, if you don't mind. Sure. Uh, and people have probably, some people have probably heard of the memory palace that's sometimes called, 
where you visually go through the rooms of a house. And, and that actually technique, I, I've read some books and you think, God, this, gosh, this guy invented this thing. This is really amazing. Now, wait a minute. That's been around since 84 BC. That method's <laughs> in that oldest book from the, Rome, the, you know, the, the Romans. But anyway, uh, but it's basically based on like walking through a very familiar place in your mind's eye and then putting things you want to remember in those places. Hmm. Well, actually, Thomas says four things perfect your memory. You need to form a mental image of what you're trying to remember, even if it's an abstract or spiritual thing. You need to place them in a certain order. He says you need to focus or concentrate. We all know that to remember. He says you need to repeat it. You need to rehearse a little bit. So with those principles in mind, I ask everyone, you know, if you will turn your powers of concentration and imagination on high. I want you to join me at my house. It's literally only about a mile from here. Uh, you're going to walk up to my front door. The door is going to open. This is the first location, number one. My front door opens. You see this blinding light, and you hear this resounding crash. You're thinking, boy, what kind of a house does this guy have? So number one, the front door, bright light, resounding crash, right? Now, you're brave enough that you walk on in, and there's a doormat. You step on that doormat, but you notice something very strange. That doormat is talking. Not only is it, is it talking, it's cursing. In, in live demos, I used to say cursing like a sailor, uh, but I've had sailors in my audience. I used to say cursing like a railroader because my father-in-law, but I've had railroaders. I'm just, just plain cursing. <laughs> but it's cursing. Well, and imagine that. Oh my gosh, I don't like this. So you imagine you're going to step on its lips to keep it from cursing. But that's number two, the cursing doormat. Now, you look, you turn over your shoulder. There's a glass panel next to our front door. You look out there. This is the third location. And you say, boy, look, I didn't realize what a beautiful day it was out there. This is the most glorious day I think I've ever seen. Uh, okay, so that was number three. You're back in. Now you're, you're back in my foyer, and on the other side of the front door, there's a wall, and there's a portrait hanging there. And it is a portrait of your own parents. You're like, you know, what's, what's Kevin got a portrait of my parents up in his foyer for? I mean, I think they're great people, but wow, I didn't realize that Kevin idolized them. But there they are. There's your, your parents up on the wall. And we'll just do, we'll do one more for time's sake. Now, on the side wall of the foyer there, imagine that I have a gun rack a gun rack sitting there, but it has a huge padlock on it, right? Okay, so number five, gun rack with a padlock. So if we could remember, I said two, two things about these methods that they'll help you to remember things literally in order or backwards and forwards, and that repetition is the mother of memory, as, as they say. So let's do this, let's practice one time, but we'll go backwards. Number five, we had that side wall of the foyer that had the gun rack with the padlock, right? Number four, there's mom and dad up on the wall. Number three, we looked out that glass panel and there was that glorious day. Number two was the cursing doormat. And number one, the blinding light, the crash. Okay, so sometimes if I do demos, I'd say, you know, uh, I grew up in central Illinois and when I was little, if I said something kind of wacky, my mom would say, what's that got to do with the price of beans? You know, we farm soybeans and corn, we still do. So, okay, so what does that have to do with the price of beans, that silly little demo? Well, okay, so number one, the door opens, a bright light, resounding crash. That's a reminder of the first commandment. That bright light is he who said, fiat lux, let there be light. That's our symbol for God, the great light. Well, what was the crash? Well, we're supposed, not supposed to worship false idols. So that was our idols crashing. Okay, so number one is just to remind us of that first commandment. We, we worship God, that great source of light. We don't worship these false idols that we hear crashing. Number two is much simpler. Uh, the cursing doormat is our simple reminder not to take the Lord's, Lord's name in vain. Number three, the glorious day you see outside, that's for keep holy the Sabbath day or the Lord's day. Number four could hardly be more straightforward. You know, honor your father and your mother. 
Number five, the gun rack has a padlock on it, right? Thou shalt not steal. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. It's, it's a gun rack. It's a, the chandelier is made out of solid steel, number seven. <laughs> I didn't get that far. But that, that's thou shalt not steal. But this one's the guns. The guns are the main thing. So thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not kill. Okay. You mentioned the padlock. So the padlock got me like you can't, you can't, you know, you can't break it and steal it. Oh, you're right. Yeah, that right. That's another possi the possibility. But it's funny. It's a funny story about that. When this book first came out, I do a lot of radio. Uh, and I, I'd give part of this demo like this. And I remember one time I was on with a, a Louisiana station. And I said, and after I did the full Ten Commandments, I think, and afterwards I said, this is actually patterned after our foyer, as it was arranged at that time by my wife. It's a lot different now. I said, but no, we do not have a gun rack uh, in our entranceway. And I remember the, the announcer, the host said, said, oh, no, don't worry about that. And nothing unusual about having a gun rack in your foyer. <laughs> and then I told that story in Texas to a live audience, and they said, what was unusual was the padlock. <laughs> <laughs> but, but anyway, but that's the general gist of the method. And we would go through, like on this cushion bench, number nine, there's your, there's your next door neighbor's wife. Well, don't covet your, neck, your neighbor's wife, you know. So, so for all the Ten Commandments, we're just laying them out in this silly little scene. We're kind of turning something that's what's, um, you know, like a, a verbal, what do you call it, a declarative memory, something that you read. We're turning it into experiential memory or live experience, like something like you've lived. Hey, I went through that little imaginary tour. So when you do that, you know, if you do this and practice a time or two, you realize, oh, I know all the commandments. And once you know the numbers, you know exactly which one is which. You know, in order. Does your memory recall images faster than it would words? Is that why that works? Or Yeah, well, well one, one example they give is that Thomas and St. Albert both say this, that we come across so much in the course of a day that you know, it would overwhelm our memory. So we only tend to remember best the things that are most striking and unusual. Mm. So they say, for this reason, we try to make some of these images kind of wild and, and silly, even you know, exaggerated for, for some of them. Uh, so that makes it more memorable because, oh, wait a minute, this is something out of the ordinary. And it's also something you've taken time to picture in your mind's eye. You've made it a scene. You've made it a personal story. Um, and, and the more you practice, oh, and it also kind of takes a lot of effort at first. You're thinking, boy, you know, I can memorize Ten Commandments or I can memorize all your rooms, <laughs> all your silly images, and the Ten Commandments, you know. But, but amazingly, though, once you do it, once it becomes proficient, these numbers come right back to you after a little bit of practice, you know. But then once you've done that, uh, like you, in the Memories of Faith, you, you have this foyer where I have 10 locations in it for the Ten Commandments. You move in the living room, I have the Seven Deadly Sins, so it had seven locations. You go into the dining room and, and we've got uh, like another seven. We've got eight or nine for the Beatitudes in the family room. We have 20 in the study for the Rosary Mysteries. So I show in an illustration 60 locations, okay. But once you've learned what's where and which room, you can kind of wipe the slate clean and use those images as a mental notepad. Like every time I go do a talk now, I say, oh, like the last talk I did over the weekend, uh, Seven Gifts of the Holy Spirit, I had 36 key points I wanted to address. Not the exact wording, but just the key points. And I laid them out in this, this uh, memory house, the same one I used mm -hmm. over and over again throughout the years. It was like a notepad inside the head. So I, so I sometimes say, if I give a talk, if I wanted to, I could give it backwards. I could start with the conclusion, you know. And wow. go to the introduction because I just know exactly, you know, where they're arranged. So, so it's very, very helpful. It can be daunting. And I'll tell one other little story. Another lady who lives a, lived a mile from here said, Kevin, uh, I, I read your book, The Memorized Faith. She goes, I started reading it. And then I went to, I thought, boy, this is pretty hard for me. You know, I'm 80 years old. She goes, but then I woke up in the middle of the night and I realized 
well, I know the Ten Commandments and the Seven Deadly Sins. So, <laughs> so it might disturb your sleep if you <laughs> if you do too much of it. But, but, but you know, and there's individual differences. It'll work better for some people than for others. Or like for people who already had a dementia or Alzheimer's, it's not going to work. For people with certain kinds of selective brain damage, it, it can work. I did some some work with certain people with certain kinds of brain injuries. But, but it's, just, it's just a wonderful method. Uh, and Thomas, St. Thomas and Albert actually wrote about it. So it's like, I thought it was kind of cool to, to use this little known aspect of our Catholic faith to apply it to the known stuff that'd be nice if we knew a little better. Well, I think it's one thing, unfortunately, with Catholics, um, you know, we don't, we don't know like our Protestant brothers and sisters sometimes. That's kind of what's, you know. Yeah, they're like, yeah, John 4, 16. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. yeah. And then, you know, they use arguments supposedly to, to, to debunk what we're trying to get across. Um, yeah, can is in your books, do you talk about, okay, those are kind of like listing and dot points to try to tips to get the more deep understanding of things in your, in your brain and to, and to understand them. Uh, yes, you know, one of the points I make is sometimes it's set up like as a dichotomy, like memory versus deeper levels of understanding. You know, because you don't want to just like rote memory, like a pair. Okay, I can pair this back to you, but I don't know what it means. Kind of like when you take a test, you, you memorize the answers, then a week later you can't, you don't remember because no you went to memorize as opposed to learning it, I guess, is no, layman's yeah. terms. Yes, yes, a- exactly. And, you know, one of the things that repetition is essential to memory. So, for example, like with the order of these rooms here, you can use it for your grocery list. Okay, open the front door, a big banana punches me in the nose, you know, or whatever. Okay, I got to get bananas and work your way through. And you could do it for a different list every week because what you don't think about or meditate about, what you don't rehearse, it's going to be gone. It's going to be gone. So I thought, so one of the ideas for memorizing these lists is memorize the things that are worth repeating, worth pondering. And as I go through my memory books, every time I talk about a topic, I will now try to give you some of the meaning uh, you know, some of the background behind them. Here's the names of the seven deadly sins. Well, what did, basically, what are these seven deadly sins? You know, in brief, what do they, what do they mean? So also the idea is, if, you, if you're ever someplace uh, by yourself, you're in an airport or something, and oh my gosh, maybe you're, you're, there's no Wi-Fi or the internet went down or something, and you're just stuck here with your own head, you know, what are you going to do? Well, it gives you the chance to think and ponder and meditate about things that, that you've taken the trouble to memorize. Because one little phrase I like to use is, it's hard to think deeply about things that you can't remember. You know, so, so certain very important things, if you bother to actually memorize them, it, it can allow you to meditate them on deeper. And another feature I try to bring into my books too is, okay, now we're going to remember their, their names, the names of these things or concepts. Now we're going to briefly describe them. And then I'll also usually say, okay, now here's where you can go. And St. Thomas Aquinas are often in the catechism to learn even more thoroughly, meditate more deeply about what, what these things really are. So I remember writing this book, I was freshly back to the church. So the publisher was helping me saying, you know, here, do, help him memorize this and this and this, the, the five precepts of the church. And I'm like, well, what are those? I don't know if I ever heard of those, you know. So I was learning myself as I was putting this book together, you know, realizing there's, there's such a richness to our faith. And, you know, not everything is in a numbered list, but, but a lot of stuff is, a lot of the essentials. Because, you know, we're famous for having our sevens, our seven virtues, our seven gifts of the Holy Spirit, our seven deadly sins, the seven sacraments, you know, uh, and so on. And two, you talk about the Protestants, yeah, they're often known for, yeah, John 4, 16, and whoever, you know, and giving the exact wording. Now, now these techniques, the ancients said there, there's two different kinds of memory using these techniques. The memory for rerum or for things and memory for words. And the, the memory for words was like verbatim. Okay, I'm going to repeat this back. And these methods 
can be used to help you with that, but that's not their primary function. The primary function is the memory for things. And we can think of that in terms of just listed items or like fundamental concepts. Like, yeah, maybe you don't remember the exact wording of John 4, 16, but if I've used these methods, you know, uh, I'll know the theme. Because there's also methods to convert numbers into words. Hmm. Uh, uh, you take like one through nine and one becomes a T and two becomes an N and three becomes an M and four becomes an R. There's a system there. So if you actually want to remember some key verses, uh, you know, you, you can use that method. So there's all kinds of adaptations. One little trick I used to do for my uh, college students, I'd have them generate a 50-digit random number. Just everybody call out a number. Let's all write these down. And then, uh, then once we had, I'd keep track, once we were up to 50, I said, okay, now let's take a couple minutes and memorize this in order. And everybody, oh, you know. But we'd do it, and then a couple minutes later, I'd say, okay, turn your page, papers over, let's see how we did. So we'd go up to the board, and I'd say, call them out. So people go, four, nine, five, whatever, you know. And maybe we get to 11 or 12 or so, then there's, so there's complete silence. And then I'd go up, and I'd finish a string of 50. And then I'd say, okay, now flip your papers over. And then still facing them, I'd start calling off numbers. Eight, four, two, and they'd say, no, Dr. Vos, those are wrong, they're, they're all wrong. I said, oh, I forgot, I forgot to tell you. I'm reading the list backwards to you now. We're going from this side of the board back here. And you know, I was able to do that because they were memorizing 50 random meaningless numbers. I was turning them into code. If, if it came out two, two, that's, oh, NN, a nun. I remember, I might even be using the image of a nun I personally know. If it came out three, four, that's an M and an R, like a mare, I got a donkey there. And then I'm placing them all, two digit numbers, in the places of my memory house. So I know exactly where every one of those images sits. So it's kind of amazing how the complexity of information you can memorize if you want to, you know, using these, these methods. And, and people do some amazing feats, you know, memorizing pi to thousands of places and things. But, but I think it's probably most important though, use these methods for the things that are important in your own life, things like related to the faith, or if you're a student, you know, or an employee somewhere, apply it to the procedures of a certain complex procedure at work or, or the steps of photosynthesis, you know, or, or whatever. I was just realizing as all this that you were just describing to us, um, even going back, um, this memory and studying Aquinas and all this. And when you even just said, if you're sitting somewhere without Wi-Fi, I mean, all of that in some is very countercultural. That's not really, um, you know, how the society works. It's like, what's the newest, greatest, what's, what's to come or what's innovative or, you know what I mean? It's not, it's not, let's study the, the great classics and, and whatnot. Oh, and, and do you think that uh, if we're going that direction, um, that that's a detriment to the Catholic faith? Uh, yeah, I mean, to me, it's like I think you know, like the technology and things. It's a very sharp, two-edged sword. I mean, so much good. I think, yeah, I've written, you know, twenty books. Uh, I did my master's thesis. I had a typewriter that had one line of print. It was called a Canon Type Star. One line I could see at a time. Thought if that was the way technology rested, I never would have written these books. Thank God for <laughs> word processors and and for the internet. You know, look up things. You know, Saint So and So. Okay, here's here's what century lives. So it's just a wonderful and amazing. Uh, thing. But, but yes, we, we get the idea too, though, we can become so reliant thinking, well, all the answers are in my pocket, you know, in my phone. Why do I actually memorize anything? I can get it on my phone. Uh, and one example I give for that is I say, imagine the situation. You, you uh, find out you have some serious illness. You need a major surgery. Okay, so you're gonna, you get to decide who's going to do your surgery. Uh, just the run-of-the-mill surgeon down at your local hospital or the world's greatest 
expert on IT sitting in a room of the world's most advanced supercomputers. He has all the information in the world. In the history of medicine, I don't know if you ever watched Star Trek Voyager, they had this doctor that's like that. He has, he's a, uh, what is it called, hologram, and he has all this computer knowledge, you know. But we're imagining, okay, so here's your IT guy. He has all this information at his fingertips of all doctors. The, the surgeon, you know, he's a run-of-the-mill guy. He just knows what the typical surgeon does, you know. So, so who are you going to have do your surgery? Well, chances are, I would assume you're going to have the surgeon do it because in important situations, there can be a big difference between having all this information at your fingertips and actually having it literally inside your own head and inside your fingertips if it's a surgeon. So I say, yeah, I would choose the surgeon. Some things are worth knowing inside and out inside your own head. Now, if I had a problem with my computer, forget that surgeon, I'm going to the IT guy, right? So not to denigrate that, of course, in his own field, it's just wonderful. But I'm saying, yeah, we just need to be careful to watch all these false dichotomies, you know, science versus religion, um, you know, reason versus faith, and then like, you know, uh, you know, embracing technology versus just totally abandoning it instead of just using it as, as a means, as a proper means, but yes, but being very careful not to let it overwhelm us because, you know, in, in psychology, there's uh, in behaviorism, intermittent reinforcement. We're most drawn to do things again and again. If sometimes we get a reward, but we don't know exactly when, it's kind of the principle of the one-armed bandits at the casinos, you know? Heck, this next pull, this might be the one, but I don't know for sure. And some people have done studies showing like dozens and dozens of times a day, people will check their, their phones, like, oh, maybe I got an important message here, you know? Usually you haven't, but once in a while you do. So, so we get all these checking behaviors and stuff. It just encourages us to look more and more and more at our phones or you know Facebook or, or whatever it is. So we just have to be real, real careful of that because we can easily be pulled in to where uh, the technology takes us beyond a proper proportion that we're, we're so busy looking at a screen that maybe you've got friends and family members elsewhere in the house that you're ignoring them. Yeah, I remember um, Dr. Ray Girardi, who's on EWTN, he's a psychologist, uh, us yeah. of the diocese, we had him on probably what, maybe a year and a half ago, two years ago to talk about parenting. And one thing he mentioned is get these kids off the phone or don't give your child a phone until like as late as possible. And in, in, in all honesty, his words, because you mentioned the, the, the technology and what that can do to kids. So my question kind of bridging that, and you kind of hit on it there, what's your advice for, for parents? I have four kids, seven, five, three, one. Um, so A, they, they don't get overstimulated with society and culture and messaging, um, which can you know psychologically, of course, maybe impact them, but then there's also the faith angle too. Um, what's, your, so what's your advice for parents and young kids on, on, on actions we can take or decisions or um, how we handle our kids' behaviors discipline-wise to help, you know, hopefully create virtuous young men and young women to go out in our world and live their faith well. Yeah, there's a few questions more important than that. Not that I have the answers, but I give you some of my, you know, thoughts off the top of my head. You know, some of the classic parenting studies in psychology talk about, like, laissez-faire parents who just let kids do where they want and authoritarian parents who have their kind of thumbs on them all the time. You know, don't do this, don't, don't do that. And there tend to be problems here. Those kids that don't laws of fear don't have limits. They, they may take unnecessary risk, make big mistakes that they wouldn't have if their parents would have guided them. And of course, in the authoritarian ones, sometimes they spark rebellions in, in their children, that forbidden fruit idea, if you're too harsh on them. The ideal is, was typically called the authoritative parents. They do have the authority, they are the parents, but they're not using it unnecessarily. They're gauging how much freedom they can give their kids as much as they feel is, is good for them, yet they're setting some limits. So I say, in terms of, of technology, 
and when our boys, you know, our boys are 29 and 34 now, but, you know, we dealt with some of this even when they were young. I would just say, uh, you know, just set reasonable limits with the kids. Like, you know, and it depends on your family situation. A good one, I think, is, you know, no phones when we're eating dinner together uh, or certain times like that. You know, grandma's coming here to visit. Let's turn the phone off. Let's not play our game and ignore grandma. Because I'll tell you, I was at dinner here in town a year or two back, and there was grandma and grandpa and I think their daughter and two kids at a table at a restaurant, and both kids played the games the whole time. Dad came in a little later, and he was on his phone the whole time, and I felt so bad for grandma and grandpa <laughs> that nobody was talking to them except, except for mom. So anyway, you know, I've just had certain rules about maybe the particular times of day or time limits for things like the phone, uh, you know, and the computer and television. So you're not seeming overly restrictive like a punishment. But then also, you know, you don't just want to say, don't do this, don't do that. You know, give them healthy alternatives. Make sure to try to set aside time to do things with them. Talk with them, do physical things with them. So I just say, you know, just probably maybe the most important thing is to be aware that if you don't do something, the results are probably not going to be good because those little devices are just so alluring. The typical child is, and even adults, you know, we are even tempted to just to go far overboard. Mm. Dr. Kevin Vos. Well, if you'd like more information on Dr. Vos, go to drvost, so drvost.com. You can see his books there, background on him. You can reach out to him, uh, all sorts of stuff. Very interesting story, Dr. Yeah. Vos. We Thank really you. appreciate so you coming things. on. Yes. Thank you so much. Thank you. If you would like more podcasts, head on over to dio.org slash podcast. Until next time, we'll see you right here on Dive Deep.